I have a news article that might be of interest to you. It's not long. Here you go. An aggressive Google Maps driving direction led to dozens of drivers getting stuck in mud en route to Denver International Airport. A large crash on Pena Boulevard in Aurora, Colorado on June 23rd caused GPS applications like Google Maps to search for a quicker route to the airport. Driver Connie Monsies told KMGH that she and about 100 other drivers seemed to be following, seemed to be following, smartphone directions onto a dirt road. Well, actually, they were. Unbeknownst to the mapping program or the drivers, the dirt road was impassable after recent heavy rainfall, and most of the motorists became stuck behind a few cars that had become bogged down in mud. Those with all-wheel drive vehicles were able to get through, and Monsi says she picked up a few stranded motorists and delivered them to the airport. All right, GPS devices, these systems, of course, obviously they can be a great convenience to us. No question about that. But equally so, we can become far too dependent upon them. They're very convenient, they're great to have, but we can become way, way too dependent on them. Now that said, that's not to just say, well, let's just throw them all out, but it's simply to say we still need maps. We still need guidance. We still need direction. We still need that. And in our text this morning, uh, that very theme is what comes up, the need for the maps, the guidance, and direction in life. There's a man who comes up to Jesus and presses into him what his views are on this very thing. How are we to live? How are we to live? By what north star, or what star at all, what's the compass for our lives? And Jesus' response to this man's question is really well worth our hearing. So if you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn now to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, it's on the screen, but if you want to turn there, that's the first of the four Gospels, Matthew, then Mark, Luke, John. Uh, we're in chapter 22 in this long series through the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. And I forgot my glasses this morning, so I'm going to do the best. No, it probably won't work. I know. So some of you are very kind. You're holding up. Different people have different prescriptions. You just have to remember that. So, so I might make things worse. Um, I could be seeing through the page for all I know. Um, I'm going to do the best I can. Here we go. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, this is 22, 34 to 40, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Well, let's pray together for a moment. Lord Jesus, it doesn't take much to see that there are huge stakes in play here. For you to say that of all the commands, there are two that really ought to get our attention. That's an extraordinary thing. So we really need to, to tune in here and to learn, to know just what it is that you would have us to learn here, what it means to 
live in this world that you have made in a way that, that fits with the pattern and purposes that you intend. Um, we need the maps. We need the direction. We need the guidance. We need it. We also confess here at the outset that in many ways, we don't want it. We need it. We don't want it. Our hearts are caught in some pretty ugly tension. We ask that you would help us to be glad to listen to your instruction here and that you would show us the life that you mean for us. Life indeed. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, if you'll indulge me, I am going to go with a little bit more Apollo 11 50th anniversary celebration uh, storylines here today, okay? Just one. You can handle it. So it was their dramatic mission, start to finish, all the way to the very end. This was not, nothing that could just be assumed. As the astronauts in the Columbia, that capsule, were making their way back to Earth, it became clear that some violent storms were brewing out in the Pacific Ocean right in the area where they were supposed to land. In fact, the shearing of the winds way up high were so bad that had they gone on the intended, well-thought-out, planned-ahead course, their parachutes would have been ripped asunder, and that capsule would have plummeted in the Pacific at such a speed that the impact would have killed the astronauts. You see, there was nothing to take for granted. This was dramatic start to finish. Now, fortunately... Uh, Apollo 11 was not the only thing that the space program had going on at the time. There was also Project 417, a weather satellite effort, even in the late 1960s. And Project 417 showed, those satellites showed what was happening out there in the Pacific. So the folks at 417 let the folks at Houston know what was going on. The astronauts changed course, changed their trajectory to a, a landing site 200 miles away. And as they say, the rest is history. Okay, but here's a scenario. Imagine, just for a moment, and we should all be thankful this is not what happened, but just imagine, just imagine for a moment that this is what happened. That the folks at uh, 417, Project 417, the weather satellite people, pick up what they do. They can see what's happening there with the storms and what's the inevitable danger that these astronauts are going to be in. And they get word to NASA, this is what's going on and you need to pay heed. And NASA responds... Huh. dismissively, proudly, angrily, we've got this all planned out. We've had this figured out for months, the way this is supposed to work. Where do you get off coming in here at the last minute telling us how to do our job? Why should we listen to you? Why should we listen to you at all? Why indeed? Why indeed? The question is to... Who has a right to speak takes us right back to Matthew 22, okay? So Matthew 22, who has the authority? Who has the right to weigh in and speak and speak with ultimate authority? That's what's in play here. On Sunday of this week, that week, here, Matthew 22, Jesus rides into the city. On Monday, he comes in and cleanses the temple. You know, it's almost like he thought this was all his own. Funny. And the religious authorities kind of get that feeling. And so they push back. 
and they push back hard. They're trying to publicly embarrass and expose Jesus. And so they send three waves of individuals with these questions, trying to trip Jesus up, trying to trick him, trying to entrap him. Two down, one to go. That's where we are here, okay? And this one day, this Tuesday of that week, the Herodians show up. That was two weeks ago we talked about that. The Sadducees show up. We talked about that last week. And now the Pharisees send this scribe, this lawyer, this expert in the Old Testament law, again, to try and trick Jesus, a vain effort to be sure. And what's interesting, we've talked about this the last couple of times, but it's equally true here, with every one of these attempts to try and ensnare and trap, trick Jesus, what ends up happening is Jesus not only engages the questioner and counters their parry, but answers the very question, addresses the issue that they're trying to use to trip him up, giving us insight, tremendous insight into the things, the issues that were being raised in the moment. And that is no less the case here. Because what's being raised is this. How are we to live? Dang, if that's not a question. How are we to live? And who gets to say that? Who gets to answer that question? How are we to live? And what becomes glaringly clear, all the more so here, and it's going to become more so when we get into this the next time, is that Jesus alone is the only one with the authority to speak on these matters. He is the only one with the right to tell us how to live. The only one. The only one to really speak and speak with any authority on these issues. How we are to live. And if we are sane, we will hear and heed what he has to say. He's the only one who has the right to speak. Ours is to hear and heed what he has to say, especially when you consider the things that he's addressing here, whether implicitly or explicitly, just in this passage. So here in your outline, these three basic points. He addresses just the simple matter of life and the different paths you can take in life. Then he addresses the issue of the law and its place in our lives, and then love and how that relates to life and law. These are huge things huge things that he is addressing, and we really do need to pay heed to what he has to say. So first, life. This, this scribe and Jesus represent, if you will, two divergent paths, two completely different paths as to how to approach life. It couldn't be more different. One would be living according to God's law. And by that, what I mean is this. Having the law and obedience, adherence to the law at the center of your life and that being your hope. So in that sense, living according to God's law, living, for, living according to that and for that. So here's where we need to talk about the Pharisee. Who is this, what is this group and who is this man, this scribe, this lawyer, this expert in the law that's questioning Jesus? What do we know about him simply because he's a representative of the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were a party of, of Jews in, in the time, the Sadducees were another, talked about them last week, who were uh, given towards focusing and majoring in on extra-biblical, and by that what I mean is uh, things outside the Bible, extra-biblical traditions. They were focused and honing in on those, trying to and, and striving with all their might 
to applying those traditions to every aspect of life, every single aspect of life, okay? And it, it was, it was um, like, like barnacles on a hull, okay, just the way that had grown and grown and grown and grown o- over time, layers upon layers upon layers of these, these traditions. So these were, were men and, and I'll say women as their families whose lives were represented by a focus and a fixation on that which was external, measurable, and attainable, okay? That's the pattern of their life. What's the, what's the result? What's the inevitable result of that? Well, on the one hand, you can say these are morally upstanding people. As we say in the South, good people. These are good people. In fact, you'd probably like to have them as your neighbors because they play by the rules, okay? They're also incredibly self-righteous, incredibly, astonishingly, depressingly self-righteous. Any hint of the need for repentance to ask for God's forgiveness immediately. It was like an allergic reaction that no Benadryl will fix. An allergic reaction to that such that it stirs up a deep, profound resentment and hostility. Hence, their pushback, their hatred of Jesus. That's one way to live. In that sense, according to God's law, meaning that's the center, that's your focus, that's your hope. That's what you're living by and for. Here's the other path. This is, that's the one that the Pharisee, the scribe, represents. Here's the one that Jesus represents. This is living according to God's love. Living according to God's love. Now, keep your thumb in Matthew. We're going to go over to 1 John. And this is where my eyes are going to get really challenged. Uh, 1 John 4. We're going to be going back and forth between Matthew and 1 John. John just writes so much about these things, the way life and law and love play together one onto another and into another so beautifully. And so we're going to be going back, looking at 1 John in several places here. 1 John 4, verse 19. Um, before I read it, let me just put it this way. A way you can sum up, a way you can sum up the pharisaical approach would be, we love and so God loves us. We love and so God loves us. But you see something completely different in what the Apostle John says in 1 John 4, verse 19, where he writes, we love because he first loved us. Those two things are worlds apart. Those two paths, they're going in completely opposite directions, and they start at completely different places. Either we, we love and so he loves us, or we love because he loved us. And living by God's love means we live because he loves us. As I was saying when the Russells were, were joining just a few little while ago here, um, the, uh, this, this is the, the whole of Christ, the Christian life is typified by his response, excuse me, his initiative and our response. His initiative and, and our response. The triune God loves ungodly people like us so much so that the Father gives the Son. The Son gives Himself 
and the Father and the Son give the Holy Spirit. Why? Why, as J.I. Packer said, to save sinners, save us from unimaginable misery and to lead us into unimaginable glory. That's why. That's why in our response, that's his initiative. It's what he's done, done. It's what he's done. Our response, and ours is only to respond, is to believe, to entrust ourselves to him, to allow our lives to be expressions not so much of duty, but of thanks, glad thanks for all that he has done with a longing down deep within our hearts that our lives would be molded and modeled upon this love in response to the love that we have been shown. Again, 1 John Verse, excuse me, chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So again, you have these two paths. It's either living according to law or living according to love. Very different. And, and that choice before us, you coming, if you will, to a fork in the road and needing to choose, that choice is still before us today. On, on the side of law... You can look pretty good on the outside. You can look pretty good, like you've got your stuff together on the outside. But down deep within, there is a steaming cauldron of insecurity and uncertainty and defensiveness, which makes you a pretty prickly person to be around. That's on the path of law. Now, on the path of love... You may not have your stuff together. On the outside, you may be as messed up as you are on the inside, but there's a change taking place. Slowly but surely, as fear is giving way to hope and humility is taking root within your life and you're becoming slowly slowly but surely more and more like your Savior. And that can be pretty attractive. Two very different paths. The question before us this morning is, which one are you on? Which one are you on? There's not a third one. There's only two. Are we living by performance or living by grace? There are only two choices. Which path are we on? Jesus is the only one, again, who has the right to speak in this way and speak as he does into these issues. We need to heed what he says. That moves us to the second point, the law. You might be wondering then, having said that, well then, does Jesus dismiss the law? Is there any place for the law in the Christian life? And the answer to those questions are, absolutely no, Jesus does not dismiss the law. And absolutely yes, there is a profound place for the law in the Christian life. Absolutely. Again, as this dialogue is taking place between this scribe and Jesus, consider the answer Jesus gives to the scribe. He does answer it. That seems like a little obvious, but he does actually engage with the man and his question. He engages the the question. He speaks about what? He speaks about the law. He quotes from Deuteronomy. He quotes from Leviticus. Do you see how seriously Jesus takes the law? 
he quotes from it and brings these two laws in a profound, together in a profound way. We'll talk about that in just a minute and how he does that. So he, he, we see something in, in how Jesus certainly does not dismiss the law in any way, just in the answer that he gives, but also in the assumption that he makes that drives the answer that he gives. How does Jesus regard the law, God's commands? How does Jesus regard God's commands? Well, first of all, you can see something in the, how he thinks of the source, how he regards, how he upholds the law simply because of where he believes it has come from and, and who it is that is behind it. If you go back to Matthew 22, and we'll get to this the next time we're in Matthew together in the next sermon in the series, just the next section, picking up in verse 41, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Now, let me just stop there. There's a, a freight train of things just to talk about in that section. That is another sermon. But notice what Jesus says here as far as the source, where the, where the law, the Old Testament, comes from. David, in this case, regarding the Psalms, David is recognized as the human writer. But who's the author? The Spirit. Oh, how Jesus holds up the law, God's commands, his word. How else do we see that? In the value that he places upon it, our need of it, his own need of it. If you go back to Matthew 4 and the account of one of the accounts of the, the, that intense temptation that Jesus faced by Satan in the Judean wilderness. And with every one of Satan's attacks, every one of his parries, Jesus counters that by calling to his own mind and heart the promises and precepts of God. You see, again, the value that he puts upon the Scriptures in the way he quotes from that, and he himself relies upon it. In no way does Jesus dismiss the Old Testament, and the commands of God. One last thing, the permanence. The permanence, how Jesus speaks. This is part of his assumption, why he responds to the, the scribe again. Back to Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. This was months ago we were there in the early part of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. What does Jesus say? Lest we misunderstand anything that he's saying here. Matthew 5, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You hear what he's saying? He could not be putting forth before us a higher view of God's word and the Lord's commands. He could not, be, he's talking about an abiding inclusive permanence, all of it forever. An abiding, inclusive permanence is how, that's the grid through which Jesus sees the Old Testament and the Lord's commands. Those are the assumptions that he's operating under, and that's what drives his answer to the scribe, to that young, that, well, that Pharisee there that day. He, that's why he engages him the way that he does. He does not dismiss the law in any way at all. Think of me uh, just for a moment. I'm going to go off my notes here. The goodness and the necessity of the law and its role in our lives. You, you, all of us this morning are walking illustrations of that. 
your bones. Now imagine for a moment you were stripped of your bones. How well do you think you will be able to move out of this room? My fellow blobs sitting in the chair. You have no structure. The law functions in, in some ways like that. It gives us the ability to move. You can't move. You have no ability to, to, to go anywhere and do anything without the structure that's literally built into your life. And the law is meant to function in, in something of that way, to give us the ability to move, to give freedom and, and, and um, well, mobility, I suppose you could say, and just be able to go through life. Okay, back to the, the notes. Jesus clearly is not dismissing the Scripture. He treasures the Scripture. Here's the question. Christians, disciples, say they are followers of Jesus. Well, do you see where this is going? We see how he views the scriptures, how do we? How do we? We read from Psalm 19 just a little while ago. And this whole, we saw how the world is what he has made, right? This world is what he has made. These scriptures are what he has said. With the world, we are called to be good stewards of that and study it well. Study it well so we can be good stewards of it. With his word, with the scriptures, again, we're called to study it and to live out of it, to, if I can put it this way, breathe it in, that we might then be able to breathe it out. And if indeed we are his followers, if indeed we are his disciples, surely that would be the posture, that would be the assumption that we would take. So again, do we see the scriptures the way Jesus does? Or if I can just be just plain spoken about it, do our reading habits reflect, or what do our reading habits reflect? It will reflect something. What do they reflect? What do they show? Jesus alone has the right to speak in these ways on, on how we ought to live. We need to heed what he has to say. Well, this takes us to the last thing. Life, two paths, Law, Jesus' understanding of the law, and now love. How does love and law, how do those two things relate to one another? Let's go back to the text, Matthew 22. You've probably been wondering for the last 25 minutes, when is he going to start talking about the text? Um, well, here you go. But when the Pharisees heard that he, this is chapter 22, 24 to, uh, excuse me, 34 to 40. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Okay, so Jesus is putting forward to us these two great summary commandments. What are they and what do they mean? Well, the first one, the greatest commandment, he quotes right out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, a part of a prayer that pious Jews would re recite twice a day. And, and just to be clear, just so that you know, when he speaks of uh, loving the Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind, he does by that he's not separating us into three distinct components of humanity, 
By that, he's speaking of over, it's in, in a Jewish way of speaking of overlapping categories. What he means by this is simply this. We're to love God with our whole selves. We're to love God with all that we are. With all that we are, the whole person, it is to be a total loyalty, an exclusive devotion to God. That's what Jesus is speaking of here when he quotes from Deuteronomy 6 as that being the first and greatest commandment. And then the second one comes right up on its heels. Leviticus 19 is what he's quoting from there. And here he's saying that we are to um, uphold and pursue the good of our neighbor, no matter who that is, even if that means hardship to ourselves. Because we are to love them as we love ourselves. And by that, what he means is as we pursue that which is good in our own lives and want that for ourselves, good and right in our own lives, we ought to want that at least that much more for the, person or the people around us, no matter who they are. No matter who they are. Love, put it this way, the way you could sort of bring these two commands together, the first and the second greatest commands, what God is calling us to do is to love what he loves and love who he loves. He's calling us to love what he loves and he's calling us to love who he loves. If I can just illustrate it this way. The best way you can love me is to love my family. See? Loving who, what and who I love. So encourage my wife. Don't treat her, just a little side note, don't treat her as the CPC suggestion box. That's actually not her role. This may surprise you. Encourage my wife, be kind to my kids, and pet my dogs. And I don't want to hear if you don't like them. <laughs> Sometimes I don't like them. <laughs> love what I love. Love who I love. It's the same thing with these first and second great commands. In a way, that's in terms of how we fulfill those. Love what God loves and love who God loves. Now, that's what they mean. How do they relate to one another? Because Jesus speaks to that here as well. How do they relate to each other? Well, he says the second is like the first. They are very similar. One is not to be raised above the other. Each is actually dependent upon the other. If you don't do the one, you're not doing the other. They come as a, as a, as a pair, an inseparable pair, the first and second great commands. Back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Or skipping over to chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is Love. That's how these two, they're like one another. The second is like the first. That's how they relate to each other. How do they relate to all the rest of the commands, these two? How do they relate to all the rest of the commands? Well, Jesus speaks of that as well. They're in verse 40 where he says, on these two commandments depend 
all the law and the prophets, or some translations say hang, like a, and actually it's, it's literally like, like a door and a hinge. The, it all swings. It moves on these two commandments. What does that mean? It means that these two commands do not dispose of all the rest, but rather all the rest depend on these two. If you want to know how to love God and how to love neighbor, look at all of his commands because they show you. They show you how to love God and how to love neighbor. This is, these two commands are at the very core of Christian ethics. The very core. If I can just put it this way, in terms of needing to think through, how to, what do we do with that today? Oh, we're in desperate need of reminders of that today. In a, in a time and in a culture where everything is said to be fluid. Everything is said to be up for grabs. Beauty, truth, values, beliefs, sexuality, marriage, gender. It's all fluid. It's all, cha- it's all changing. It's all whatever you would make it to be. That's what we're told. And so if you name a certain thing, call a certain thing a, a certain way, then everyone around is therein supposed to yield to that. That's the time in which we live with nothing definitive, no, no, no true truth, just mine and yours. My friends, yielding when someone names a thing the way they want to may not be loving. It is certainly not in accord with the scriptures. It is also equally certainly not in accord to love. Love would mean listening. Praying, maybe speaking, certainly weeping, and waiting. But it does not mean yielding. It does not mean agreeing. And who alone has the right to speak that way? Not me. Not anybody in this room. But only Jesus. Only Jesus. We need to heed what he has to say. What do we do with this? First, we have to come back to the very basic premise and ask ourselves, is any of this even true? Um, is, is, this just a, is this just a legend, legendary figure that we're speaking of here when we read from the Gospel of Matthew? Well, Historians of all stripe, scholars of all stripe, Christian and non-Christian are in agreement, at least on this point, that Jesus was, in fact, an historical figure. You can count on that. There's no argument on that score. So just set that aside. The question is, did he say these things? That's what people debate. Did he actually say these things? Now, just grant me this assumption that he did. And there are great reasons to believe that he did. And if you want to talk about that, after the service, I'd be glad to do that, or sometime this week. The reasons that we can count on the fact that the Gospels are, in fact, an historical record of what took place and what was said. All right, so he's real and he said it. He's real and he said it. Can we trust what he says? Now, that's the next question, you see. So he's, he's, if he was standing in the room, real, and saying what he's saying, can we believe it? 
Can we believe what he is saying? So this is an argument that C.S. Lewis and many before him articulated. If, in fact, he's real, and if, in fact, he said it, well, this is where this takes you, then as he's saying, and he's one of three things, he's either a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. Okay, lunatic. Is he crazy and delusional? He doesn't sound like that. In fact, sometimes he sounds like the sanest one in the room. And certainly the people around him would have been able to pick up on whether or not he was crazy and delusional. And he certainly would not have formed the, 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 the band of followers that he did. Okay, he's not a lunatic. Was he a liar? Was he a megalomaniac intentionally deceiving as best he possibly could the people around him to just foment a movement and create a thing? Again, the people around him would have been able to discern this, and they certainly would not have given themselves to saying he is king and Lord, and we will give the whole of our lives for him, knowing that he's deceiving us. Okay, so he's not alone. So he's, he's there, he's real, and he's speaking, and he's not crazy, and he's not evil. Where are we then? He's Lord. He said the things that he did. He is who he said he is, and he has the right to speak. How far? How far can he speak? As far as that horizon goes, and as high as the heavens reach, he can speak. He has the authority to speak. How? Because he's Lord. He alone has the authority to speak and tell us how to live. Life, law, and love. Let's pray together. Lord, these are astonishing things, astonishing things to claim. First, that you would claim the right to speak, the authority to speak. And then the things that you speak on, are absolutely astonishing. They just, just rattle us. But even as they rattle us, we feel as though perhaps we're getting a, a gasp of fresh air for the first time. Well, we confess our struggle here as well. Because on the one hand, we are acknowledged that we're lost without someone speaking. But at the same time, we at times just push back on what's being said. We ask that you would gladden our ears to the sound of your voice. That voice is the voice our ears were made for. Would you gladden our ears to the sound of your voice? You alone have the right. Help us to heed you. We pray in your name. Amen.